0: This is the Trey Blocker Show, starring Charlie Hodge and Trey Blocker. And now, here's Trey Blocker. In this episode of the Trey Blocker Show, I traveled to Washington, D.C. to interview Roy Beck, founder of Numbers USA, the nation's leading immigration reform group. In today's America... The left vilifies anyone and everyone who believes we should reduce immigration to the U.S. To shut down debate on the matter, often successfully, they call people racist, nativist, and xenophobes. Unfortunately for them, Roy Beck is none of these things. He is perhaps the nicest human being you could ever meet. A painting of the late Congresswoman Barbara Jordan hangs in his office as a reminder of the work that she did on immigration reform back in the 1990s a legacy that Beck carries on today. He is a gentleman, a scholar, an environmentalist in the truest sense, and a champion of working-class Americans. I hope you enjoy the interview. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to the Trey Blocker Show. Uh, We are in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and I am sitting in the office of Mr. Roy Beck founder, president, and CEO of Numbers USA Education and Research Foundation, uh, which is the leading immigration reform group in the U.S., and the Houston Chronicle uh, has actually called Mr. Beck one of the top five leading thinkers on immigration policy in the country. Uh, So, Mr. Beck, I'm sure it's pretty clear what I'm here to talk to you about.
1: Good to have you in my office.
0: (laughs) So what do you think about Obamacare? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, you know, the great thing about being a silo, and Washington is full of silos, sure. single-issue legislative organization, is uh, we have one issue we talk about and everything gets brought up and say... Not our issue. Go ask someone else. We're probably down the hallway, right? That's right.
0: (laughs) Well, thanks for taking the time with us. Uh, I want to get our audience a little educated on your background, where you're from, and and where you grew up, what influenced you as a kid, where you went to school, so you mind telling us
1: a little about where you're from? Well, I grew up in the Missouri Ozarks, not all that far away, uh, near Springfield, little town of Marshfield, Missouri, uh, 2,500 people. And uh, ended up going to the University of Missouri School of Journalism. Uh, got drafted. Spent a couple of years in the U.S. Army, and uh, 1970 to 72, and then uh, uh, and went into the newspaper business. I'd worked for the Columbia Missourian in Missouri, Grand Rapids Press in Michigan, Cincinnati Enquirer in Ohio. Ended up in uh, uh, in the 80s uh, for six years in. O- Cliff, Dallas, Dallas. Right. So uh, I served my time in Texas uh, during that period. Everybody needs to serve a little time in Texas. It's uh, good for the soul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we enjoyed that very much. My family. We raised a couple of boys at least partway, in uh, Oak Cliff. We uh, we ended up in Oak, uh, Oak Cliff because uh, in the Lone Star Industrial Park there it was a, a newspaper, a weekly newspaper called the United Methodist Reporter. Okay. Semi autonomous newspaper uh, had about 500,000 circulation among Methodists nationwide and uh, spent a lot of time at. In and out of DFW, sure. probably a couple of weeks every month flying around the country and doing stories about the intersection of the of United Methodist Churches with all kinds of social economic issues uh, uh, that during that time. It was a great period. We enjoyed Texas. Then I ended up coming to Washington with the Newhouse newspaper chain, which is, I believe, is still the third largest chain in the country. Right. And I was responsible for covering Congress uh, with a team uh, that worked for me. Uh, for eight newspapers in Michigan. Oh, wow. Around 1990, I was covering committees that were working on revising the Immigration Act. Uh, there have been some, the really big, major redos of immigration policy happened in the early 20s. And then again, a little bit in the early 50s, big time, 1965 again around 1980, 1986 was when the big amnesty was passed, and in 1990, most people don't think about 1990, but that was a time when they decided that even though immigration had been increased by at least double over what it had been uh, in the 50s and 60s, they increased it again by another 40% or so. Uh, And I was covering that legislation uh, as it went through the committees, and uh, it passed in September, and it occurred to me that most of the issues that I'd been covering as a reporter by that point, almost 25 years, uh, were really impacted by and going to be impacted even more by this big increase in immigration. And I uh, just found myself deciding I wanted to, was ready to change careers, become an author. So I ended, sure. up, ended up writing four public policy books, did a lot of magazine writing, had an Atlantic Monthly, article that sort of (laughs) propelled my career. And in 1996, I started this organization. And that's what I've been doing ever since.
0: You know, Mr. Beck, I've noticed uh, from doing this podcast, my most humble guest typically if i 'm looking at my timer, they have gone through their entire life history in less than five minutes and move on to, to <laughs> substantive <laughs> topics so i 'm going to make you back up for a second right. if you don 't mind That's uh, I, I noticed in your in your bio that you are the son of a milkman now there, there are very, I, I assume various uh, iterations of what a milkman is right. did, did he did he tug on udders or did he deliver some milk
1: well he he grew up on a little uh, dairy farm, uh, a subsistence dairy farm in the Ozarks. But if you look here on my walls, you'll see here's a calendar, the type of calendar given out every year, Beck's Milky Way Dairy. Uh, and here's a, here's a, a, a painting of uh, the Centennial Fourth of July Parade in 1955, and there's a green milk truck. Okay. That's my dad's milk truck. Wow. He, uh, he got out of the World War II, came back, and took over a little dairy, uh, the kind that it used to have, you know, right. b- before the packaging revolution, and uh, he would buy milk from the f- nearby farmers. He would pasteurize it, bottle it in these glass bottles, okay. and then the next morning he would deliver it door to door throughout the town. Right. And uh, so I grew. He started that the, the year before I was born. Uh, he he exploited me mercilessly by <laughs> by tying me to the front of his milk truck in some of the early parades, uh, drinking the milk. Okay, uh, but I, I grew up helping him deliver milk. No chance
0: door. of you getting osteoporosis. <laughs> that's right.
1: I so I, yeah, I I grew and they used to at the at the barber shop which is kind of like a Mayberry RFD, uh, Annie Griffith show barber shop. Right. When I was a kid, I used to go in there and uh, you know the old man would be sitting there telling stories. I'd come in and they'd say, Hey Bertaldi, that's the barber. Uh, Who's, whose boy is this? Well, that's Warren Beck's boy. And then they'd say, hey, uh, what's your name? Roy- That's Roy Howard. Roy Howard, anybody ever tell you you look a lot like your milkman? <laughs> <laughs> and they would, they would laugh. That, laugh. that joke I had, never got old. Huh? I had, and I had no idea until I, I was a lot older. <laughs> what that meant? So anyway, I was the milkman's son. Okay. There was no question. That was my identity okay. growing up. And I grew up, my dad was, I mean, you know, he was World War II. He was, uh, he, 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 he did not. He was artillery uh, officer, trained artillery, and was supposed to be part of the invasion of Japan. Oh, wow. But they dropped the bomb right. on, on his way over, and he instead was part of the, the first-year occupation, mopping up around Japan. Oh, wow. But he was a great, great patriot, American Legion. Did, I, 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 by the time I was in fifth grade, I was playing taps at military funerals. Oh, did wow. Did that all through until okay. I okay. went off to college. Do you still drink milk? I do. <laughs> okay. Didn't know if you might
0: be sick of it by now. Uh, so what made you want to go into journalism?
1: Uh, well, you know, I had, a, I had a, my dad's father who had a third grade formal education and ran that subsistence farm. He was for over 30 years a, a weekly correspondent in the local weekly newspaper uh, for his rural area. Okay. He had written a couple of small books and uh, th- it was like I was just around that kind of thing, the right. writing. And uh, so I wanted to be a writer, and by the time I was seventh grade, I started reading these reading things about becoming an author, mm-hmm. mainly thinking about writing fiction. They talk about people who well it 's a really good idea to be a newspaper reporter first okay and that 's really why I got into it. Gotcha. It was but, a means to an end, but then once I got to doing it. You know, I loved it because you have, you can be a kid right out of college and immediately you're, you know, you got, to, you, you, you're you allowed to talk directly to the mayor, ask the mayor tough questions. Right. Uh, I, I, the top business people. It's, it's, it is quite the way for a, a, a lower working class kind of person to, to uh, jump right up and mix it, you know, sure. rub elbows with all kinds of people. It's very exciting. But there's also kind of a, you know, you really get in that feeling of, you can make society better there 's something you can do to make society better now there 's also a lot of uh, reasons you get into journalism that are maybe not such great but i think I think there 's definitely a most of us that got into it kind of like to Give people with the power a little bit of trouble. <laughs> well,
0: oftentimes they need it. Right? <laughs> uh, I, I read in your bio that you you used to teach Sunday school. Are you still teaching Sunday school?
1: I'm, well, I, I I'm a rotational teacher right now, but I, I, I did uh, ten years of teaching junior high and high school Sunday school. Okay. And uh, but most of my life, I I've done teaching uh, adult Sunday school. Did I've, do you have a favorite Bible story that you
0: like to share when you had your teenage, teenagers in the room? Was there a go to?
1: <laughs> you know, uh, with teenagers, there's two things you, you want. You really want them to avoid getting themselves and making decisions that will make it tough for them the whole rest of their life. Right. And, you know, there's four or five major ways you can do that. Sure. Uh, Killing yourself one way or the other is the worst way, but, but you know, so you, you want to do that. But at the same time, you want to constantly remind them that nothing you do moves you out of the uh, love of God. You kind of want to. That, that's an important thing. That the verses on that very important to keep kids from getting so depressed they think about suicide and okay. things like that. It's like so. That's, there's a tension there. So. Um, I I can't say that there's exact uh, Bible verses, except I do, I do like I do like to use that verse about uh, you know that nothing you know and it goes through the list of all the things nothing can 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 separate you from the love of God. Right. And uh, uh, the other one is uh, uh, Jesus is saying that I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Uh, So this idea there's there's definitely a place for sacrifice. But it's not. But that we, you know, really, there's a. It's it's okay and it's good to to seek an abundant life and then let's figure out what does abundance mean. Right, right. Now I think that's important. So you
0: mentioned that you've you've written several books over the years and you've covered various topics from the environment to ethics, religion, and public policy, which in immigration, all of those are my favorite topics. Yet I have to admit, I've never read one of your books. So on the on the airplane ride up here, I got on Amazon and I ordered a couple. So oh, I, I will be catching up soon. Uh, <clears throat> but you know, one of the reasons I wanted to come up here and talk to you is is even amongst the, the political class that I run around with, folks who you would think are pretty well informed about public policy, uh, don't really understand the immigration policies in the United States. Uh, they don't aren't aware that the United States currently allows over one million people to come to this country mm-hmm. every year. So, I, I wanted to get you to explain to our audience exactly what those policies are today and, and how that's affecting where this country's going. Well,
1: when I started this organization in 1996, we, we called it Numbers USA. It's the Numbers USA Education and Research Foundation. Uh, and We called it that for a couple of reasons, Uh, but mostly it's like we believe that the most important factor in immigration policy is the numbers. It's how many people you're bringing in because uh, every one of those individuals is is a human being and everything that involves. We also wanted to signal that we were not an organization that was focusing on the character and characteristics. Of the immigrants, now it's not that that those aren't significant. Uh, it, it obviously, in different situations, it makes a difference on whether you're bringing in a nuclear scientist uh, who's going to, uh, you know, be uh, uh, worth, you know, quarter million dollars a year or whatever, or right. whether you're bringing in somebody that that has no education, no skills, and and, and and maybe really can't even justify the minimum wage. That does make a difference, but overall. We believe that the, the issue is the overall numbers. And also sometimes people, when they get into the question of who the immigrants are, uh, it can become too critical of the immigrants themselves. Right. And our, our, our policy has always been that, that uh, whatever is wrong with our immigration system, it's not the immigrants' fault. Uh, the people who have come legally have, have taken advantage of something that we've offered. Sure. And the people who come illegally, they have it's they are they are guilty of having broken the law, and nearly all of them know they have. But they've also broken the law because we've made it easy to break the law right. and to stay. So, uh, I you know say that, but the numbers are really important. We were in the fifties and sixties. We took in about a quarter million a year. Uh, legal numbers. It turned out that that was actually the, about the average between the beginning of our country in 1787 uh, 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 and 1970. About the average at times, time. It was about a quarter of a year. But it okay. had gone up. It had gone down. That was about the average. Uh, because of the 1965 Act, uh, which we can say something more about if we need to, uh, there was a big change. And by the 70s, it was getting up into the 400,000s. Uh, by the uh, by the 80s, it was up, uh, getting up around 600,000, and then by 19, ni- after 1990, after that law change that I said caused me to get right. into full time, right. it's been it's averaged a mi- over a million a year since 1990. Okay, what what causes all that? Well, there are some there are some caps, there's some ceilings along the way. Uh, they all operate together, and it does seem like that since 1990, we're kind of uh, uh, at an equilibrium. It is, it's the legal immigration is not rising by much. Uh, it, it, it may be we can hit 1.2 million, uh, but it's, it's around a million. Okay, there are people who are brought into this country because they have something specific to offer the country, right? And that's usually that's a skill, uh, that's generally the case. There are people. Who come to the country because they are related to somebody who's already here, and then there are people who are allowed into the com- country for humanitarian reasons, and that's basically it. Those three things. Sure. So I think when you think of it that way, it's fairly simple. Uh, the, the uh, but the, what really has caused the numbers to, to balloon is the fa- this relationships being related to people. We take in about 140,000 people a year based on an employer seeking to employ them. Okay. So out of over a million a year, only 140,000 come in ostensibly because they have something to offer right. to the country. Everybody else is something else going on there. And that's part, that's part of the problem. We have an unlimited number. There's, there's, there is no number. Of how many people can come in because an American citizen has married them or adopted them? Now, adoptions are not all that much, but the marriages are huge. The marriages are up, you know, over three hundred thousand a year. Uh, uh, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of marriages. No limit to that. Okay. My organization uh, does not oppose that. We believe that that's part of the liberty, part of the. The, the rights of citizenship that you would be able to marry people outside your country sure, and adopt outside your country. Um, but since 1965, when we opened immigration up to every country in the world... So what was it before 1965? Before 1965, from 19, until the 1920s, we had almost opened borders. You couldn't yeah. come in if you were ill, sick, right. and if they thought you'd be a public charge. Sure. And we didn't have a social safety net, so uh, during the Great Wave, uh, you know, around 1900, uh, may, you know, maybe a third of all immigrants went back home because they couldn't make it, Oh, wow. and there was no there's no welfare system
0: to take care of them. So, but even during the Great Wave, uh, mm-hmm. what were the numbers like then?
1: The, the Great Wave uh, averaged average you know, 500 to 600 thousand. Right. About what it got back up to in the in the 1980s. Okay. Uh. So. Um, that was the open borders part in the 1920s they go we just can't do this anymore right uh, the uh, we have these uh, we've created these horrible conditions in the, in the, our, our big cities uh, uh, people live in horrible tenements uh, the, the the wages have been driven down uh, so that people live in almost like, like uh, uh, indentured servants really uh, and they decided and said so we we're going to change we're going to change it so they, they put they they put caps on it, so it went, It it dropped down from the you know six hundred thousand a year uh, to uh, less than two hundred thousand a year wow. uh, between the nineteen twenties and nineteen sixty five, uh, and it was very. It was limited to the countries that had provided the people in the country already. I see. Consequently, very difficult. To come as an immigrant during the, from 1920 to 21 to 1965, very difficult to come as an immigrant from Asia or Africa. Uh, very easy to come from, well, not very easy, but re- relatively easy to come from Latin America and, and uh, Europe. But it was, it was low numbers. 1965, as part of our Civil Rights Revolution, the feeling was, man, this, this kind of looks racial. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not specifically racial. It was geographic. Right. But the effect was racial. And they said, we've got to put this in, in sync with our new civil rights uh, uh, ethos. And so they said, now every country in the world has equal access. And then put certain kind of uh, limits per country. But they also opened it up so that everybody not only could bring their spouse... Okay, if you're coming in based on you're getting an employer wants you and you've been allowed to come in for for a job, you can bring your spouse and minor children. But you can also bring, apply for, your brothers and sisters, your adult brothers and sisters,
0: Hmm.
1: and your parents. Okay, well, by itself, that doesn't sound like a bad thing, but this is chain migration because the brother and sister and your parents... They may not have any of the skills and attributes that we wanted you to come right. in for. Right. And if, if that were all that was happening, that wouldn't have been such a big deal. But each one of them can bring, you know, these brothers and sisters can bring their spouses. And their spouses then, can, uh, once they become citizens, can petition for their brothers and sisters and their parents right. and their children. So you can see that. It takes time for this to happen, but uh, re- immediately, you've got people in a particular village, for example, where you've got your, your, cu- your cousins, your nieces and nephews, your aunts and uncles, your first cousins once removed. Uh, I've, in Texarkana, Texas, I have a whole bunch of double-half-second cousins. And in Dallas, I've got a double-half-second cousin twice removed that owns some restaurants there. Right. Know, this right. is right. the kind of thing that happens. Yeah. You know, we all have- to
0: bring a whole village here is what you you're can- saying.
1: A whole village could right. start to line up. Sure. Now, so that's how we went from a quarter million to a million. Is all of this chain migration? Uh, that and it's automatic. We give out these. There are some. There's some caps on it. Right. So, what happens is every year, automatically, we just open up another million slots and every one of them get lifetime work permits. During When, when, when we had the job depression, the collapse in 0, 07, sure. uh, excuse me, 08, in 08, um, we continued to give out a million lifetime work permits. Because to, that to, makes sense, right? To foreign citizens. Right. It's just automatic. But that's what's been going on since that's how we got to 1990. That's what's been going on since 1990. Uh, and then the, the the humanitarian adds up to, Oh, between fifty and and eighty thousand a year. Okay. Uh, that's that part, but it's so, mainly this chain migration.
0: And then, isn't there also a component that's
1: uh, referred to as the visa lottery? And that was put in in nineteen ninety. Okay, and to, in my thinking, it seems that seems really absurd. So, you've got we have all these pockets of non employment. And non-employment is much bigger than unemployment. Unemployment means you you actively look for a job last month, but then we have 12 million more working-age Americans who are not in the workforce at all than we had before 08. We we are continually larger and larger numbers, larger percentages of the American working-age people are not working. Right. So. We have all that going on. Not only have we have this chain migrations coming in, but every year we raffle off fifty thousand lifetime work permits, just at random. Okay. I mean, to, to the people who, who whose approved, idea was that? <laughs> well, it was some members of Congress, and uh, it was done originally to help bring in more Irish. There at the beginning, it was loaded for the Irish, and then after a few years, it it expanded the whole okay. world. And it's it's not for everybody. If if you're If if a country has um, larger than a certain percentage of the the, uh, immigrant population that's in the country, they can't play the lottery. So this is primarily for the—I think there's about 20 countries that can't play the lottery. But this is primarily for countries that don't have a lot of connection to the United States in terms of the people in it. So it it has primarily been Eastern Europe, uh, the Middle East— uh, um uh, All over Africa, uh, those are countries that have not had uh, a lot of access and so we and, and so millions and millions of people pay their money uh, it 's not a big fee, but it 's kind of big for them right and then every year we we spend the spend the uh, i guess the computer wheel and 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 raffle off fifty thousand lifetime work for without any regard to whether they have skills we need or anything else right that 's amazing so, to me it 's the metaphor for our whole system, which our belief is is that the immigration system should serve the interests of the American people and, most importantly, not harm the people, the, the, our, the members of our national community who are the most vulnerable. Right. It was at this point that I realized I could talk to Roy Beck all day.
0: There was no chance after traveling all this way I was going to cut this conversation short. He's a wealth of information and insight on a very complex issue, and I knew I was just scratching the surface. And I hadn't even asked him about the famous gumballs yet. So we kept talking, you can hear the rest of the interview in part two of this episode. This has been the Trey Blocker Show. If you like what you heard, please visit TreyBlocker.com for more episodes and a chance to donate and support the show. Thank you for listening.